I don't know about you, but when I think back on my days of playing make-believe as a kid, it's the most fantastical imaginings that tend to come to mind first. Princess dress-up sessions, high-stakes playground adventures in which successfully crossing the monkey bars was the only way to avoid hot lava, an early encounter with a karaoke machine that quickly led to a narrative about life as a pop star, you get the idea. But when I really, really reflect on those days of playing pretend, I am reminded that I spent plenty of time in fictional scenarios that were actually pretty boring. There were so many hours of playing house. And The Sims? Don't get me started on The Sims. On episode 258, my guests and I unpack the appeal of these simple domestic fantasies, largely because that's what we see at the core of the classic Boxcar Children series. While we both remembered this series as an extremely exciting one, coming back to book two, Surprise Island, proved otherwise. It's actually a pretty quiet story. Over the next hour, you will hear us talk about the general appeal of the Boxcar Children, wish fulfillment, the similarities between this series and the Little House books, the way we see gender roles play out on the page, the Boxcar Children and capitalism, and whether Surprise Island should really be marketed as a mystery as it is today. I feel like The Boxcar Children is one of those series that makes kids from so many generations and decades get all warm and fuzzy inside. So I hope you enjoy this episode. You will hear a bit of street noise here and there, but I am confident that it won't interfere with your listening experience. I feel so lucky to be welcoming author Andrea Bartz to the podcast for the third time today. Andrea Bartz is an essayist and journalist and the New York Times bestselling author of The Lost Night, The Herd, Reese's Book Club pick, We Were Never Here, and most recently, The Spare Room. Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Marie Claire, Vogue, and many other outlets, and she's held editorial positions at Glamour, Psychology Today, and Self, among other publications. Andy lives in Brooklyn and the Hudson Valley with her partner and their silly cat and dog. Follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Andy Bartz. As far as social media goes, Instagram is my home base for lots of fun behind the scenes and podcast news. So if you like what you hear today, be sure you are following me there. Instagram is a fantastic place to spread the word as well. If you feel so inspired, please take a screenshot of this episode, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me so I can see it and share. You can also find SSR on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If, after all of that, you still don't have enough SSR in your life, I can pretty much guarantee that you will love being part of our Patreon community. Yes, Patreon contributions help me keep this one-woman show going, but SSR patrons also get access to bonus episodes, newsletters, reading recap videos, exclusive guest Q&As, and so much more. Get the details and get involved at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. This month in the SWR, that's shit we read book club in Patreon, we are reading Jane Roper's The Society of Shame and we are gearing up to discuss Annabelle Monahan's Nora Goes Off Script in September. Come join us. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is the best place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. 
Andy. Welcome back to SSR. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. It's so good to see you. We are sort of coordinated in our outfits. Listeners, you can't see this, but we we have this tradition, I guess, where we get the chance to catch up every like two-ish years. And I guess we were really in sync this time because we're both wearing stripes today. So I think that means that this is going to be an excellent episode, just like Andy's other two episodes. I agree. This was very auspicious. I'm into it. <laughs> yes. And side note, if you have not heard Andy's other episodes, I will make sure to link them in the show notes. Go check them out. And I will also share them on Instagram. Instagram for you this week. But let's get into episode three. We are talking about the Boxcar Children, the second book in the series, Surprise Island. We have not talked about Boxcar Children on the podcast since all the way back on episode 37, which is wild. I will also link that episode in the show notes. I'm so excited because Boxcar Children was such a huge part of my childhood. I've been antsy to get back to it because my first reread all those years ago really surprised me. So I'm excited to be coming back to the series with you. So Andy, tell me a little bit about your history with the Boxcar Children and why you wanted to come back to the series for this episode. Yeah. So like you, I remember the Boxcar Children books being a big part of my childhood. And I just, I was one of those kids who like, if I found a series I liked, I read everything I could find in it. So I did like all the Babysitter's Club, all the Goosebumps, like would really go deep and, you know, hit the whole catalog. And so Boxcar Children was one that I just remember really enjoying and just like kind of binge reading one after the other chain reading if you will so I was really excited to pick it up and I was kind of like oh I didn't really remember that it was sort of a mystery series like that's kind of how they market it now and of course now that I myself write mysteries and thrillers I was like oh this is an even more perfect fit than I realized and reading it was I'm gonna say bizarre it was a bizarre experience It is, isn't it? That's how I felt after I read the first book in the series for episode 37. I was like, I don't think this is what I read and loved so much when I was a kid. Like, this can't be the whole thing. Right? That was the reaction I had, too. Like, did somebody switch it? Is somebody pulling pulling a fast one on us? Yeah. So I do want to speak to one of the things you said about the way that the books are marketed now, because I had a moment of confusion myself. They were not marketed specifically as mysteries when we were growing up, and when you and I were going back and forth about what book to talk about today, I believe the phrase like boxcar children mysteries came up at one point. And I thought that maybe it was like a series extension or something because all of these old series have like so many different like offshoots. And so I was like, oh, there's probably like boxcar children and then boxcar children mysteries. Right. But to your point, at some point along the line, they just started calling all of them mysteries and I don't remember them being that way. And I enjoyed reading mysteries a lot when I was a kid. So I like feel like I have a pretty good sense of what was a mystery and what wasn't. This definitely was not in that category for me. And spoiler alert, after reading Surprise Island, I can see why. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also loved like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and like, to your point, I really liked the Babysitter's Club mystery mystery specials or whatever offshoot. And we read one of those together last time. And that was a lot of fun. So I too had a lot of like, wait, what? (laughs) When returning to this, realizing it was one of the OGs, it is now called a mystery. And it was sort of nothing like I was expecting on any level when I actually read it. Yes. Okay, so a few quick facts about Surprise Island, just to make sure we're on the same page before we dive in. So this is the second book in the series. It was published in 1949, written by Gertrude Chandler Warner. And Gertrude Chandler Warner, for those who don't know, was a teacher. And she wrote, I believe, 15 or 16 of the books herself before they were sort of delegated out to ghostwriters. There are now more than 150 titles. There are still new installments being published into the series. Random House actually just bought the rights recently. There's an article in PW within the last few months about it. So like the Boxcar Children still very much like in the world, making headlines in the industry. I think that we should start, maybe if it's okay with you, by chatting about like the general appeal of the Boxcar Children because I have some interesting articles and essays as always. But I would love to hear from you, Andy. Like, what do you think when you look back on your relationship with the Boxcar Children when you were a kid? Like, what do you think might have appealed to you? And having now come back to it as an adult, how has that perception of the general appeal of the series perhaps evolved? Going into the book, I assumed that there was going to be like a relatively 
quote, no, quote unquote normal or traditional story arc where, you know, there's like something the main characters want and they go after it. They learn something from the process like that generally is true, whether you're reading a picture book or a literary novel or mystery. Right. So I thought that would be true in this case as well. And there really wasn't the book sort of like committed a cardinal sin of adult books, at least where things just happen. It's like, this and then this and then this and then this and they don't necessarily build they aren't necessarily in the service of getting like closer to something or reaching a goal it's just things happening but what's interesting and that must have appealed to me as a kid and certainly i recognize now as something you don't see that often is that this entire story is about these kids let loose with their imaginations completely allowed to run wild so they have very little oversight the book begins with you know, it's these four kids who are no longer living in a boxcar. That also surprised me. I was like, well, that was short-lived. Right. That was the fun part. <laughs> that was the, yeah. Like, wasn't that the whole series? No. They're living with their rich grandfather. And in the very first scene, he, like, takes them on a boat to this island he owns. Surprise. Casual. Yeah, just low-key. And he's like, I thought you might like to live here this summer. And they're like, great, we would love that. And he's like, okay, cool. And, like, leaves them there for the summer (laughs) they stay they like set up little beds in the stable and you know different stalls they create like a table out of two barrels and some boards and stuff like that and it really effectively captured that feeling you have as a kid of like ultimate dream is to build a fort in the woods and sleep in it like nothing could be cooler so they're not even really playing make-believe but they're sort of like play acting as adults uh, without supervision, making their own decisions, splitting up the work, going in on these projects together that are of their own accord, whether they're making a little museum of the you know nature around there or they're making a schedule of we're going to swim every morning. They have all of this agency as kids and they're just allowed to like follow their imaginations and like build things and experience them and feel like they're really in their own sort of magical world. And I do remember as a kid, like playing in the woods and like always trying to build forts. I don't know why we had such an obsession with building forts, but like (laughs) it sort of to me like was tickling that that instinct and that impulse and like that just part of being a kid that nothing seemed cooler than sort of being on your own and getting to play act as an adult, which is ironic because now that we're adults, we're like, man, we had it so good as kids. We had no responsibilities and all your needs were taken care of. Yeah, I want to I wanna linger a little bit on your use of the word imagination because I think that's really interesting because as I was reading this book, and again, like I'm an adult, I'm way past the point when I'm like supposed to be reading this book. And also it's not only a very different time from when I read these when I was a kid, it's a very, very different time from when these books were written in the 20s and then published into the 30s, 40s and beyond. And I think that like it's really easy for me to read this and be like, you know, to your point, they have all of these resources. Like now not only do they have this independence, but the author has very cleverly like put them in a situation where they are living with this rich grandfather and can therefore access pretty much anything they want or need. They can do anything they want, really. And so I think my instinct is to be like, and this is what you do with your imagination? Like, but I think there's a couple of things at play here. Like the first is that who among us did not play house as a kid? Like I loved playing house when I was growing up, which is in hindsight, like kind of weird. Yep. <laughs> but I guess it's an instinct that you have when you're young to sort of mimic what the adults around you are doing. When I look back now, I'm like, it was kind of weird that we were like assigning roles of like spouses to each other and children and like just recreating this like very heteronormative, like particular kind of family when we were, I don't know, like three, four, five years old. So I think I did probably use my imagination in that way when I was a kid. But also, I guess we have to think about the context in which the books were written. And like, this probably did feel like a lot of imagination and like a real fantasy for kids who are reading it right when the book came out. Yeah, fantasy is such a good word for it. I was thinking about how it was sort of wish fulfillment because all of the things that you hope will happen when you are a kid and like you you know you and your friends decide on the thing you're going to do we're going to go down to the beach and we're going to look for amazing artifacts from the native americans who used to live here like they would find it you're going to we're going to go down to the beach and we're going to look for a cave that we can go inside (laughs) they find it like everything that you as a kid are hoping is going to work out and like generally doesn't because like in real life there's not just like a cool cave full of like actual treasures 
everywhere you look. They had everything on that island. And it just, it reminded me of how much, as a kid, how much of your time is spent sort of like seeking out these fantastical experiences. I remember going over our house with a fine tooth comb, every closet, every surface, looking for like a secret passageway. Cause it was like, well, there's no way this is just a regular house that doesn't have like a cool, you know? And I think we found that like the laundry chute was now only one level, but used to be two. So there was like a kind of trap door in one of the, in one of the closets that like the laundry used to go through. You're like, everything's been alive. That was, that was <laughs> mind blowing. Yes. We're like, yeah, I knew it. But yeah, it just felt like everything that you hope you're going to stumble upon when you're playing as a kid, like just thing after thing worked out perfectly for them. Yeah, there's also this element of like domestic fantasy, which is a phrase that I've heard applied to the Little House series as well. Um, And of course, Little House is like a whole other thing that we have explored on the podcast. You can check that out, listeners, if you want. But there are moments when you read these books back that you feel like you could almost be reading from a Laura Ingalls Wilder book because there's just these like lists of things that they're doing. There's these like grocery lists and to-do lists and chore lists. And the joy that the kids, especially the girls, experience in those lists is really kind of, I think the word that comes to mind is like pure maybe and like naive and innocent. Like they just revel in these lists and in these small moments. And I think that I found them as a kid like almost meditative, like there was something about just like the nouns, like if we want to get down to like the craft of it, like these lists of nouns that they needed to have in the house, like just stuff that you needed to bring in and things that you could make and bake and create and clean. Like, I don't know, I'm sure there's some science to it. But as a kid, like that felt very calming to me. Yeah, well, and there's something too, I remember about being a kid where like the stuff that your parents could do, the stuff that grownups could do felt downright magical they could like make something out of nothing like this is i don't know the dumbest example but it's coming to mind like when my aunt got her i think phd and so for some reason they like made a hat for her that had it doesn't make sense anymore but like there was a hat and they put wings on it and i'm sure they like went to like you know michael's they went to a craft store and they got like a hot glue gun and they put it together but the fact that like it didn't exist and they made it felt like downright magical to me. Like that's what grownups can do. Like they can do alchemy. And so something I was noticing in the book too, is that there was tons of lists of nouns and there was tons of description of specifically one of the girls um, cooking and baking. The pie. She the makes pie. The pie. We learned so much about that pie. And now as an adult, yeah. I was like, how in the world is she making these like relatively ornate, baking is like a science. She has very few ingredients but she's somehow making a delicious pie and we hear every single step of it and how she boils something and then she pours it over and then she da, da, da. And I, I think that as a kid felt sort of magical that like, wow, a kid could do that. Like without even a recipe, she could whip things up and make something out of nothing. And that definitely felt like part of that sort of fantasy of playing adults and being able to have that power to like nourish and create. Yeah, this came up on the last episode or two that we did about Little House, but we made the connection between that kind of writing and that kind of content and the way that we consume vlogs in 2023 and just like the weird calm that can wash over you when you're just like watching people do the stuff that in your own life feels really boring, Mm -hmm. but is somehow like more glamorous and interesting when it's on a screen and produced by someone else. It occurs to me that there's kind of something similar going on here. Plus, like, the kids have so much agency. Like, of course, it's this very contained, safe situation because they have all these resources to fall back on with their grandfather. But in that safe container, they are making the decisions. The grandfather literally says to them when he drops them off on the island, like, let me know what you need and I will get it for you. Like, you tell me what is going to be necessary for you to accomplish the kind of life that you want to have on this island for the summer and I'll get it for you. And so they get to make that decision. And then once the items arrive, they decide how they're used, how they're rationed, all of that. So there is, I'm sure as a kid, this feeling of like, I could do this and kids maybe have more power than they often feel they do. 
Yeah, no, we, we literally watch them have discussions about like, okay, here's how we're going to schedule our day. Here's how we're going to plan ahead. Here's how we're going to devote to this or that. If it rains, we'll have a rain plan. It's very adult. And yeah, it's, it's the kind of stuff that like we as adults have to do. And it's just kind of boring and it feels like admin. But when they have complete say over what they're going to do every single day, it's so, I don't know, exciting to them. And it feels like so much agency and like, who doesn't love feeling like they have tons of agency and complete control over their lives, whether you're 10 or 90, you know? Yeah, for sure. There's an essay in The New Yorker that I found uh, that was published in 2016, and it's called The Boxcar Children and the Spirit of Capitalism. And I think it speaks to what you were just speaking about as far as like their tendency to just plan and really like want to be programmed. Like they really are into hustle. Like they are, they're like the original hustle culture kids and they, yes. they have all this free time. And most of that free time, at least at the beginning, is spent doing very practical things. And this essay talks about how a lot of that spirit is rooted in American capitalism and the time in which the books were written. And I just wanted to share a couple of quotes with you because I thought that this essay is just really interesting. The author writes, for them, there's no better use of total independence than perfectly mimicking the most respectable behaviors of adults. They earn money, do chores when no one is watching, and engage in none of the mischief that other literary children take to when left to their own devices. None of that for the boxcar children who are so Puritan that Henry worries out loud that building a pool on Sunday would be amoral before Jesse justifies the activity by saying the pool will help keep them clean. And that's, of course, in reference to another book, but I think we see some specific examples of that in Surprise Island, which we can talk about. But like these kids really are sticking to the spirit of capitalism. There's one quote that I, I think I like double underlined it and my note in the margin was like, I think this is what the whole book is about. Jesse says, everything seems better when we have to work to get it. And I was like, ah, yes, capitalism. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, well, it's funny too, because there's one scene pretty far in where they all get to bring a friend out. And again, it's out of nowhere because like kind of every event doesn't isn't really triggered by anything before. It's just random. Right. But they all are allowed to bring a friend with them. And like, there's some naughty friends who come along and like, those naughty friends end up in danger. That's the only time there is any whiff of danger in the whole book. It's when like the bad kids who don't follow directions and don't play nice with others misbehave and because of their misbehavior end up potentially hurting themselves and others. So that definitely, yeah, continues to underscore that sort of praise for idle hands. What's the phrase about idle hands being the devil's work? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, there's something about the devil in that saying. I think that sounds about right to me. And then even when like there's a whiff that they might want to do something fun, there's a moment with the violin where Violet becomes obsessed with the idea of learning to play the violin because Joe, who we'll talk about more shortly, reveals that he's a really talented violinist and she's just like overtaken with emotion hearing him play the violin and she wants to take lessons and learn. But she literally says like it would be selfish of me to learn to play the violin as a child. And I think that there's like so much going on here. I had so many thoughts about it. I mean, at face value, of course, it's like it goes back to what we've been talking about, which is that these are kids that do not see the value in idle time, who don't even see the value in hobbies. And to me, like playing the violin is like of all the hobbies you could have is an extremely respectable hobby. It's an extremely mature hobby. Like she's not trading Pokemon cards. There's a product like people enjoy the violin. It's it's sort of this like, I don't know, cerebral, intellectual pursuit, at least the way we think of it now. But she is like, it's selfish. Like I should be making bread or like taking care of my siblings. And then of course the added layer for me is that I feel like there's so much conversation as an adult woman about like, you know, women feeling like it's selfish for them to use their time in ways that are just fun for them. Like yes. we often feel this pressure and I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but like in the reading that I've done, like there's a lot of scholarship out there about how contemporary women like don't feel like they're allowed to do things just for themselves. And like, did it all come from Surprise Island? <laughs> there definitely was an agenda and yeah, absolutely. The fact that that was the, the others had to convince her, including the boys, the others had yeah. to be like, no, no, we give you permission to go and do this thing because we'll enjoy it too. And we will love to listen to it. And it mm -hmm. definitely, yeah, did not take attack having to do with her own agency, even though the book sort of on the surface is all about these kids having so much autonomy. Right. Like there are so many other things they're doing that they're telling me are fun, but like, this is a thing that 
is actually fun for her and she doesn't feel like she can do it. So that was interesting. I want to hear from you a little bit more about other ways in which you found gender played a role in this book, coming back to it as an adult, because I think there's a lot to dissect. Sort of big picture, did you have any thoughts about gender in Surprise Island? Yeah, well, the obvious conclusion, the obvious thing that was impossible not to notice was that like the girls did most of the the cooking and the sort of, you know, housekeeping and the boys did more of the, you know, constructing things or, um, you know, taking charge and planning for everyone. The boys were sort of heralded as, you know, leaders and idea people and the girls were more sort of in the service of the others. I think the, the oldest one is the boy. He was like 15 or 16, something like that. So he was sort of like the, you know, patriarchal figure and like definitely the the leader of the group, even though the women seemed more than competent and able to do a lot. But it was just interesting. There were lines where specifically the older boy would be like, oh, well, like the girls will do this for us. Look, we found some we found some whatever kind of fruit like the girls can make something out of this. Like it was just assumed. It was also interesting in terms of storytelling that there were four of them because it could have just as easily been two characters. It could have been six characters. Mm. There was something in the storytelling where I as a fellow author was like, why are there four of you when I like cannot keep the two girls separate? I can keep the boy separate because it was the youngest who acted like a little kid and the 16 year old who acted like more or less an adult. But the two girls just really did not seem to have a lot of distinction in my mind. I totally agree. Even as you were saying that, I was questioning like, wait, was it Violet who wanted to play the violin or was it Jesse? Because they are so similar. Like Henry and Benny feel so different because they're the oldest and the youngest and they have really strong and different personalities. But Jesse and Violet are always just kind of like hanging out together, doing things in the kitchen. Right. I just know that the older sister, and I'm pretty sure Jesse is the older sister, she seems to take on this role of being everybody's mom very naturally. And as always, listeners, like I want to make it very clear that like there's nothing wrong with wanting to take on that role or with being somebody who is naturally drawn to those kinds of tasks. Or if you are somebody who has natural like like a compassionate instinct. And if that feels like a maternal instinct to you, then that's awesome. I just think it's interesting to come back to these books now and see how quick Jesse was to do that. And of course, in the first book, we find that the boxcar children have been orphaned. And at least from what I remember, like Jesse didn't have a moment even to process the fact that she lost her parents before she just was like, okay, well, I'm the mom now. And we talk a lot, I think, now about parentification and certain kinds of families. We actually recently recorded an episode about the book Cheaper by the Dozen and how with a big family like that, like parentification tends to happen, especially with the older girls. And so I was thinking a lot about that as I was reading this book and preparing to talk to you today, like just the way that these kids seem to naturally fall into their roles. And I don't even think I can necessarily criticize it because I think that that is sort of what happens in real life. Like even in 2023, I think that some of this holds true for better or worse. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. But I think something you said that was interesting about um, Benny and Henry's very distinct personalities is that I don't think I could tell you anything about the girls' personalities other than being really sweet in the service of others and then Lucy having this one characteristic of really liking the violin but it did kind of feel like just through their actions and you know obviously we're not getting like a really deep internal you know point of view or anything but there was distinct personalities for the boys and the girls were more of a reflection they were there to serve others and so we saw less of like who they really were underneath. Yeah, Henry gets to be like the tough older brother who is calling the shots in a lot of ways and taking control. And then Benny is like your classic youngest child. I think my favorite Benny moment is when they have the picnic you were talking about when all the friends come for the picnic and Benny's friend Mike comes and Mike is like definitely like the least well-behaved of the group. Certainly not interested in doing anything productive, constructive or in service of others. And Mike brings his dog. And of course, the boxcar children have their dog watch. And Benny and Mike get into like a whole argument about whose dog is faster. And it almost like breaks their friendship. Like there's a minute there where I'm like, they might not recover from this. And that's such a Benny moment where he like gets to be that way. Like all these other kids are literally like behaving as adults. And Benny's like, no, my dog is faster. Don't be stupid. <laughs> yeah, I think some of my favorite moments were Benny just getting to be a toddler, essentially. There's a moment that he's like howling and howling. And John is like, is this is this normal? And they're like, yeah, it'll pass. <laughs> like, 
Yeah, like everything's fine. Just like move on. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about what actually happens when they get to the island. Now that we've covered the Boxcar children big picture and talked about the way that this family is functioning and some of our thoughts about it. So they get to the island and really like one of the first big things they realize is that there is this man living there that we did not know about. The grandfather, as we know, like casually owns this island He's laid out like exactly what buildings are there, who works there, who lives there. But he doesn't know that this guy, Joe, has been living there with, I believe, Mr. Browning, who is one of the few people that occupy the island. And first of all, I thought this was just like really creepy. I can't put my finger on why. But just the way the whole thing came out, which was like Mr. Browning was like, oh, by the way, like I've just had this guy living here. And I should probably tell your grandfather about it, but I haven't yet. And we find out later that there's a reason that this has been kept a secret. But that felt shady to me. I don't know. For a book series that, like, everything is pretty out in the open and above board, I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. That was a little iffy. But I guess that's the point. That really is, like, one of the core mysteries is, like, who is this guy, Joe, and what is he doing there? What did you think of that revelation? Yeah, I mean, by a 2023 lens, it definitely was like, oh, this is incredibly creepy. There's somebody living here that the grandpa didn't know about. And for some reason, everyone's decided it's fine. And they're just going to essentially hide him from the grandfather. I don't know why the grandfather wouldn't insist on meeting him, checking him out. He was just like a young dude who was like helping out and a handy, you know, a handyman and helping out around the island. And then he, there's tons of interaction between him and the kids uh, and they just immediately like him and, and have a rapport. He, you know, is sort of this guide to them and this mentor and he really encourages their exploration and he saves some lives at certain points. So it's key to the story that he's there. But yeah, by modern standards, it seemed unbelievably weird. And then even by the time we, you know, solve the mystery and learn everything, I'm like, no, that was still weird. That I did not... Nope, don't feel satisfied. And adds the weirdness of the fact that the grandfather just like sent them off to live on an island for the summer without really knowing like what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Like there is a telephone. So like why? We know that there's a telephone. Like why did anyone inform the grandfather before? There's just a lot of questions that I was like, okay, things were different in 1949. But like, I think people were still like a little bit concerned about who was hanging around their children, right? You would think, you would think, especially children who have been through this kind of trauma of like losing their parents and having to uproot their life, live in a boxcar, move in with their wealthy grandfather they never met, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, They've already been through a lot, but they really are taken with Joe. They become friends with him very quickly. They seem really attracted to just his knowledge. Like he seems to know everything. Not only is he a great handyman, but he is able to identify different plants. He seems to have this really rich history with living In the area, he knows about the history of the indigenous people that live there. The word Indian is used quite a bit in the book. And so they just like find him to be so brilliant. Benny immediately is like, Joe is my best friend, which I thought was very endearing, like in such a toddler way. Like, yes, everybody that I meet who I like is my best friend. and I'm going to tell everybody. And so, yeah, Joe kind of just like comes in and out of the story regularly and is always helping them where it's needed. I loved the plot line where they are creating a museum thought that was so fun. One of the things that they love the most about living on the island is just like discovering different kinds of nature and like collecting them. And because they have Joe to teach them about it, it's that much more fun. So they decide they're going to turn that, I believe, the attic of the barn into a museum, which can sort of serve as a rainy day activity. They can like spend bad weather days organizing everything they find on the good weather days. And I thought that sounded really fun. It was cool that they discovered it was something that the grandfather also did when he was a kid. But and (laughs) it also speaks to what we were chatting about earlier as far as like everything has to be productive. Like we can't just look at rocks and leaves and flowers and fossils and anything else that might be out there for fun. Like it has to be in service of making a museum and like it has to be constructive and it has to be scheduled into their day in a very specific kind of way. Yeah, I agreed. I mean, it definitely spoke to the kind of kid I was where I had like a rock collection and I like, I still remember in a drawer I had like a, a snake skin and like all sorts of different, you know, stones that probably picked up for me for a few dollars and, and thing, you know, stones <laughs> I thought were sparkly and wanted to keep. So 
I appreciated that element of like, ooh, we're going to be so intentional about our walking. It's almost that like forest bathing idea, right? Of like, I'm going to be so mindful that I notice that there is a, a leaf over there that's really pretty. I am in that moment and I'm not, you know, distracted the way that we adults are running around our crazy lives. But then, yeah, this additional element of like, okay, so now we need to play act as adults and like spend all this time for no audience, really, for, for ourselves, like turning it into this museum. It felt, yeah, it had a little bit of that, uh, that capitalism instilled in these kids too. And it was interesting with Joe because he, of course, like because he is an expert in this, really loves that the kids are doing it. And some of the only times that the book really has any, like gives us anyone's thoughts or gives us any like internal anything is when Joe accidentally is like letting too much slip about how much he knows. And it's like, oh, and then Benny luckily, you know, distracted everyone by saying this. And so that Joe could take that opportunity to leave before they ask more questions. And I was like, why is he trying to hide his identity from kids too? Like it, it was, it was odd that the only time we got that insight was when Joe was being like kind of dodgy, honestly. Yeah, I thought that was weird too, even from like a craft perspective, like, all of a sudden we're jumping into Joe's head in a way that really we like haven't been in anybody's head in that way throughout the book. And so that was sort of strange. But it's around that point that the kids start to get a little suspicious too. Violet says, it seems funny to me that Joe is just a handyman. I shouldn't think he would be working here on this island if he knows so much. So they start to wonder just as Joe is starting to question himself and like whether he should be sharing so much of what he knows. I have to say after that, and that was, I think, about like halfway through the book, I started to feel a little bit confused because I understood, of course, that like the core mystery was figuring out who Joe is. But then all of these other like little sort of mysteries kind of popped up about things that are happening on the island. They find different artifacts that the kids want to learn more about and Joe's like kind of helping with those. But I sort of lost the thread a little bit of what was going on and I found that I didn't really care about anything so much as I cared about figuring out who Joe was and like how he was related to everybody in the book. And as I was preparing to chat with you today, I was like, I don't think I could tell you anything else that happened in the second half of the book, except for like the revelations that we get further about Joe. Like I know that there was something about a cave that mainlanders want to like blow up. And at some point they find like a message in a bottle that was written by their grandfather that then directs them to find some treasure that appears to like indicate that there were indigenous folks living there. Like, but none of those felt like mysteries or even surprises to me. Like, of course, you're living on this like really quiet island that is home primarily to like non-human. And, you know, it's like, of course, those things are going to be there. There's history in these places. So as I was just like reviewing my notes, I was like, I don't think I really know what happened and like what I was supposed to care about. Is that just me? No, 100%. I mean, I said at the beginning that like, I had the weirdest experience reading it as like, as a storyteller and as somebody who like looks for a story because yeah, it did not follow any of the traditional conventions. And like, by all means, the author must know what she's doing because these books sold millions and millions of copies. But reading it, I had the same experience of like, like, what? Like, it, it continued to be the wish fulfillment of like, you know, you hope you'll find a message in a bottle. Look, there it is. You hope that you'll find buried treasure. Poof, here it is. Right. And that all was like very one note. Like it didn't, it didn't build. It could have happened in any order. They could have found the message in the bottle on the first chapter. And like, you know, the, the pile of clams that were apparently wampum they could have found that at the end like the order didn't matter so it wasn't building and like the kids weren't really interested in the main mystery i mean they they sort of wondered and then they would just go back to their regularly scheduled lives of like swimming and exploring plans. their plans they're very you know <laughs> yeah. fastidious important plans so it became really hard to follow and then one of the weirdest parts was when another man showed up on the island and like had dinner yeah. with them and just thought it was totally chill to be like yeah oh, I couldn't find another adult. So like, I'm going to allow myself into your home where you're living and ask if you've seen this dude I'm looking for. It got really weird. Yeah, it just was like one thing after another after another. And I was like, I don't think I, I felt like, I think I like disassociated a little bit from it. Whereas like, I feel myself turning the pages and I want to find out where Joe is and who Joe is. And 
cool, cool that the kids are enjoying their day-to-day lives, but none of it was interesting. Yeah. Which makes me sad because I imagine that as a kid, I probably would have found a lot of these details interesting, at least like the discovery piece, like the kids stumbling on all of these different things that were cool and a little bit mysterious for them. Like, I'm sure that to a young reader, that's interesting. Although I don't know, like, I hate to say this, but I don't know that some of those things would appeal to a young reader in 2023. I would imagine that the new books that they're publishing into the series are a little bit more high stakes or a little bit more intense. It's hard for me to imagine even like a five or six year old sitting down in 2023 and finding this to be super compelling. Right. Well, it was just, it was really hard for me to read it without like my editor brain on of like the notes I wanted to give the author, which again, she knew what she was doing clearly because of the many, many sales and the excitement around the series. But yeah, I was like, why don't we start by setting up the mystery on the first page and then everything the kids can find would give them an additional clue towards it. Like that's, that's how you would do it. That's how you would build suspense. That's how you would keep people turning pages. That's how you would make these different revelations of, of finding stuff, the message in the bottle, the bones, the accent, whatever. That's how you would make it exciting because it would actually be relevant and like feeding into a central mystery. It totally lacked that. So it was a really weird experience reading it. And I found, you know, at the beginning I was quite charmed because it was just like, no, oh, this is yeah. what it's like to be a kid and to be so excited that you found a cave. But I, I'm with you. The second half, I was just sort of like, okay, okay, let's go wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> It fell into place a little bit for me. I think it was in the last chapter or maybe the second to last chapter when they tell their grandfather about what they figured out with Joe, which we will break that news to the listeners in a moment. Spoiler warning. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big bombshell. But it fell into place a little bit for me because in positioning that news to their grandfather, I think it was Jesse who's like, she's kind of trying to prepare him for this revelation and she knows that he's really old and is worried that like this could cause him to get sick in some way and so she says something about how like we're gonna call this surprise island because there are so many surprises and like this is the biggest surprise of all referring to joe and what they have learned about him and i feel like that is kind of what the author was trying to get to which is like look at all the different things that surprised them all the things that they learned all the things that they stumbled upon this relationship that they developed with joe that they couldn't have expected but maybe it's in the marketing like maybe i was set up to think that that this was going to be a mystery and so then every time i thought that I was like getting to the part of the book where I I was learning what the mystery was. I was like, no, that's just like another boring thing. thing Maybe it was an expectations thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a real trap that like authors can fall into of like things happening, but them not feeling exciting, them not landing. And I was just like, I got some notes for you. (laughs) Yeah. Andy, I'm going to give you the privilege of sharing really the biggest twist of the book and that biggest surprise about Joe. Share with our listeners the solution to the mystery, if you will. If we're going to call this a mystery, which I think is up for debate, I'll leave that to you as a mystery thriller writer. Well, tell me more about that twist. Yes. Drum roll, please. We find out, not by really anyone's investigation or whatever, but just because they finally decide to tell the kids that Joe is their cousin. So their grandfather is his uncle. And he, I might get this wrong because it was just so odd. It didn't really land for me. He had like gotten hurt and stumbled up, stumbled onto the island. So he happened to end up on his his uncle's island and he didn't know who he was for a while. Yes. And then he figured out who he was, but he didn't want to reveal himself to his uncle until he was fully well. I don't know why. Yes. I don't know why. Because he's a tough guy, though. (laughs) He's a tough guy, Andy. Like, he needs to just be his full tough guy self before he can go back home. But it wasn't even, like, to go back home. It was even to, like, alert his uncle that he was there. It was so... Yeah. It was very strange. But, yeah, that was the big reveal. And they were so thrilled to find out that he was their cousin. Like, that was great news for them. But... Yeah, the whole story of, like, what he was doing there, I was waiting for everything to snap into place. And I was like, what? Well, this also just indicates to us that, like, grandfather has sort of a habit of just, like, bringing people into his home. Because I think sort of the – one of the most striking things about the first book is, like, how generous is it that he has invited these four kids to live with him? 
And Joe informs us that he was, like, living with grandfather at one point. So, like, this is a thing that he does. So he's a really good guy, but also it sort of makes me feel like things with the boxcar children are, like, a little less special because this is, like, I don't know. He does it sort of regularly. He's just got this revolving door. Yeah. Like, he'll take in, he'll take yeah. in orphans. He'll take in, you know, lost toys. Like Right. Yeah, I mean, I was happy for the four kids because, as we know, they've lost their parents. And, like, I'm sure that there's some innate need to feel like they are finding more family members. I also sort of saw it coming, like, not to brag, but, like, saw it coming. It seemed pretty obvious to me that there was some relation between Joe and the Aldens. Um, But it was a satisfying ending. They all get to go back to grandfather's house together. They catch lobsters. They have a nice end-of-the-summer party, which is kind of lovely. So again, bringing in your expertise as a mystery and thriller writer, Andy, is there a mystery in here? I wouldn't call it a traditional mystery, but I guess there is a mystery because there is the question that they plant that, you know, the author plants at the beginning that is answered at the end of who is Joe really? Because there's literally a scene when they first get to the island and the guy who lives there is just (laughs) casually low key like, um, I wanted to let you know, I actually have a guest living with me. And we see a scene, and the grandfather's not present for it, but we see a scene where a doctor is talking to him. And it says, like, it's like giving us all the dialogue. And then it says, you know, it breaks the dialogue to say, like, he shares his name. And the doctor is like, oh, I see why you have not <laughs> given your name yet. Right. There's a reaction. Yeah. So there was like, it was withheld from us. And for me, that doesn't make a super satisfying mystery when, like, you could have found out on page one, but they, like, decided not to show you and took you through a journey to then like just tell you at the end anyway not you don't learn because of anyone's yeah. doing but sure we can we can call it a mystery if if you know right who am i to argue with random houses marketing team you know <laughs> one more question was this book boring would i tell other i'll answer a different question would i tell other adults to read it out of nostalgia <laughs> no would i would i expect right. other adults okay. to find it entertaining no But did I find something very charming about uh, being reminded of sort of the magic of being a kid and seeing everything through that lens? Yes. So uh, then no, no comment. (laughs) Very diplomatic and parallel question. And you know, this is coming because this is your third time on the show. How did your experience of reading this installment of the Boxcar Children compare with your memories of reading any of the books in the series when you were a kid? How did it hold up? How did it let you down? It let me down in terms of the storytelling, which I know I keep going back to, but it was sort of disappointing to realize that it didn't, yeah, hit these basic emotional beats that we expect out of any story. Like I said, whether it's like a picture book or something really complex. So that was sort of shocking to to try to reconcile like how beloved the series was with how like how little it did to keep my interest as as a reader. But yeah, I could also see why a kid who doesn't yet know that stories are supposed to work a certain way would really love. It just it just hit on so many fantasies you have as a kid with, you know, the hidden tre- the buried treasure, the cave, the message in a bottle, the discovering remains that are so special and important that they have to keep you away from them so that professionals can come in and and you know do an archaeological dig wow it was just sort of fun to read like this this compendium of childhood outdoor fantasies many of which i i also had yes i love that and even as an indoor cat myself i think that i had the the fantasy of like deciding what i would eat for dinner like as a kid that feels really incredible and hard to wrap your head around and like I think we joke about it now like you see people make jokes about this online but it's like I'm an adult and I can eat ice cream for dinner if I want or I could eat like leftover Halloween candy for dinner and these kids like they feel like they have the world at their feet because they decide that they're just going to have some bread and milk for dinner and there's some fantasy in that too so um, I agree with you very interesting reread. I think that uh, my opinion about the series still stands from episode 37, but I'm glad we got to delve into a little bit more of an adventure part of the Boxcar Children because the first book is pretty quiet. Andy, let's talk about some better storytelling. What have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners, especially as we're heading out of the summer reading season and into the fall? Yeah, some summer reads that I really loved include Thicker Than Water by Megan Collins. She writes really beautiful sort of literary thrillers and it's a very creepy mystery. Jessica Goodman is somebody that we have in common, but her latest YA murder mystery, The Legacies, is so much fun. It's very 
Gossip Girl adjacent and a lot of fun to read. Some that are coming up include um, Angie Kim has a new sort of literary mystery called Happiness Falls that's out uh, beginning of September. So I think right after this. And I'm really stoked for that. And one of my favorite 2023 reads that I keep sharing is my sister's debut thriller. It's called The Writing Retreat. Uh, I was an instant New York Times bestseller. I'm very, I'm a very proud sister. And it's super claustrophobic and it's set in winter in like, you know, a snowstorm in a mansion and it's super creepy. So especially as we get into colder days, I think that's a really good sort of snuggle up and read book. I totally did not make the connection that that was your sister because that book has been everywhere. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. How fun. Well, I will include links to all of those books in the show notes for this episode. And Andy, I can't wait to hear about your new book, The Spare Room, which has now been out for a couple of months. Tell us all about it. Yeah, absolutely. So The Spare Room is a queer domestic suspense book that is about a woman who early in the pandemic her entire life has just sort of imploded. And so she accepts a couple's invitation to come live with them for, you know, as long as she needs to get back on her feet in their remote Virginia mansion. Once she gets there, she finds much to her surprise that she's falling for both of them. And even more shocking, they return the feelings uh, and end up all in a relationship. And at first she really loves being a part of this, you know, sexy new world with them. But when she uncovers that they have done all this before and their last partner is missing, she starts to wonder if they might actually be dangerous and worse if she is next. And it's um, sexy, it's twisty, it's dark, it's queer. Like I said, it's an own voices story. And I hope it's just a ton of fun to read. It's definitely a weird book. It's it's even weirder, I think, than my my first three books. So it's been fun seeing seeing all <laughs> sorts of the varying reactions to it. Well, I've been seeing lots of positive reactions to it. And congratulations on having it out in the world. That's super exciting. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to have you back after your next maybe even weirder book comes out. And we can talk about some other throwback read and and who knows what what that will be we'll have you on for a fourth time if if you would be willing I cannot wait and I just I yes I love the opportunity to you know regress and and revisit those childhood <laughs> touchstones so yeah thank you for having me on thank you for creating that opportunity perfect congrats on the spare room and I'll talk to you soon thanks thanks so much SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.